Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I have a a very quick question that is rhetorical uh, this morning as we begin. And and I've been thinking about this more and more. I, I feel like I feel like one of the ministries of church and certainly one of the ministries of, of, of God's calling on my life is, is to help Christians stay reminded of their, of their true identity in Jesus Christ. I feel like that's the biggest lapse and the biggest need of our day uh, in Christianity is that we are too prone too quickly to forget who we truly are in Jesus. And I'm telling you that if you forget who you are, you, you'll lose all of the essence and purpose and meaning in our, in our faith. And so I, I started thinking about what, what is it that, that causes this, and among many, many other things, I think for our culture, it, it boils down to what you say as soon as you're baptized. Okay, so picture with me, if you will, the day you said yes to Jesus, and when the pastor or whomever baptized you, what do you say when you come out of the water? I don't really want an answer, uh, but, but I think that it boils down to two primary answers that most people would give. Either they see their baptism as the, uh, as the end of something, I mean specifically like brokenness, guilt, shame, those sorts of things. It's like this is a decision that I've known I should have made for a really long time. I finally made it. It's the dessert, baptism, check mark, good to go. Thank Jesus that he has set me free from the curse of sin and death. All that's true, amen? All that's true. But there is another thing that you should say at baptism that I think very, very few Christians are understanding. And, and I, be, I believe it's because we allow so much brokenness and our culture talks so much about brokenness and need and failure and self-esteem that it's caused us to have such low views of ourselves. And so when Jesus saves us, we see it as, a, okay, now I'm waiting for heaven because I'm useless, I'm worthless, I have no value. Even, even in our faith, we have no value, no validation. And so when we're baptized, we have left out the coming out of the water and you have to do this, this fist pump and you have to say, let's go, right? And, and I believe once we realize that we've been freed from something, we need to recognize that we've been saved to something as well. And I feel like we're, we're so hamstrung because of our lack of repentance and our lack of holiness that our let's go keeps getting paralyzed by our woe is me. And so the church, I feel like, is constantly trying to talk people into being saved or to stay saved. And pardon my doctrine there, we won't get into that. But, but staying in this healthy place of, of salvation and holiness and growth because it's like this constant juggling act. People are, foo, 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 foo. I think I did too many foos for my ups and downs, but you get it. And we're not, we're not walking with Christ. We just lean on him when we recognize our brokenness again. And when we're not broken, we turn right back to our worldly processes and choices. But that's not what salvation is. Salvation is not just saved from something. Our salvation is a daily salvation where we are saved to something. And I believe that that's the ministry that God wants for us is to remember. Listen, I'm telling you, if you will remember that you are saved for something or to something, you can't forget that you're saved from something. But if you only live in the saved from something, you're probably not living your Christian life with purpose. And it might be boring. It might be lifeless. It might be waiting and a restlessness that leads to distractions and hurdles and obstacles and more brokenness. So I want you to turn, if you haven't already, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. And I want you to listen very, very closely because I, I, don't, I don't know that this message, I mean, I know the message is for the church, uh, but it is so layered 
There is something in here, regardless of where you sit, there is something in here that I know the Holy Spirit is so packed full. I want you to be able to hear what, what God is saying to us today. Paul said, from now on, from now on, and he's talking about from those who, I mean, not from that particular moment, but he's talking about from those who have now received salvation, for those that are now in the church. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, he's saying, at one point I saw Jesus as just a man, but now I realize he is not just a man. And when I see humanity, I can't regard humanity as just, as just people. There is so much deeper than that. Regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I want you to see how important it is to notice that once you become a Christian, it's not just about burying the old way. It's about taking life as a new thing. He is a new creation. This is like this new birth, this new life that's manifested once you become alive in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. If you start thinking about it's about spiritual gifting or you start thinking it's about worthiness or you start thinking that it's about how good you are or how well you live, believe me. It's, Paul is saying it's got nothing to do with you. All of this is from God. This is one of the reasons why you should not regard men according to the flesh. This is not the way we work. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and at this new birth gave us a, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, just let's clarify. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul begins this section kind of going back to the theme that he's been establishing from the very beginning of 2 Corinthians, and that is he has detractors, these difficult people who are talking about him behind his back, men that were telling the churches that Paul was preaching in, they would slip in after he left town and they would say, hey, that Paul's a nobody. That Paul wasn't even there with Jesus. Now, this is not the disciples saying this. this are, these are just other difficult people. That, that Paul is weak that Paul is useless, that Paul is ineffective. And they begin to say, don't listen to Paul and what Paul has to say. Listen to us, how powerful we speak and how strong we are. Look of how great speakers we are. This is what power looks like. And people, this early church was mesmerized by these, these charismatic charmers that would come into the church and they would win people's loyalty to themselves. And they would begin to put speakers in a hierarchy of who was most powerful based on who spoke the most eloquently, who tickled their ears. And don't listen to Paul. And Paul would even say, hey, I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm here to reveal Jesus to you. Uh, and, and before you think that, I'm, uh, let me just say it this way. When Paul preached, people were fall asleep and fall out of windows. That's why we don't meet upstairs anymore. Uh, although it feels like we're sitting outside today, or at least it does up here. I know it's about 35 degrees hotter on stage than, I'm not, I don't know. LED lights, I can't say that anymore, but it is really hot. Uh, so just know when I do this, it's not conviction. Well, it might be. Uh, but Paul begins this section, and it's a very important continuation of what he's already been working on. We won't have time to go back and look, but Paul begins this section by pointing to the fact that Christians are to evaluate things differently than the world evaluates things. 
There's a separation between the kingdom of this world and, and the kingdom of God. And using the tools of our natural man, it becomes ineffective and inappropriate for judging the things of God's kingdom. And so, yes, you, you are tempted to judge things based on what pleases you or what tickles your ears or what makes you feel something. But what Paul is saying is you need to look and see what truths transform your lives. That's how you know what's of God and what's not. Not how someone looks or how someone walks or the how many people follow somebody or how many bestsellers they sell. This does not impress God one iota because everything that we have comes from God initially anyway. So Paul says, as Christians, we don't judge power the way the world judges power. We're not looking for the best book, the greatest following, the biggest crowds, what begins to happen, and we see this regularly, such egos, sometimes they get off track. They begin to think that they're above the spiritual law or the law itself. They begin to assume that they have something to offer, and they begin to eloquently tickle people's ears. And, and as a pastor, I've had the unfortunate opportunity to watch many people, young in ministry, that I would learn from, listen to, read after, and after a few short years of influence and popularity, begin to teach some of the weirdest things and get off track in the weirdest directions. And now, I remember one, I remember one man, uh, I heard him live and as he was speaking, I, I could not write fast enough. Everything he said, I was like, whoa, this is like, whew, where has this been? And he saw things nobody could see. And he was right. It was true. I'd go back and study this stuff. Man, and then just a few short years later, he's complete, uh, pastoring a church, but he's a pronounced atheist. Pastoring a church. And the church is filled with atheists who just love doing church, singing songs that remind them of a feeling of a God that they don't believe in anymore. Wow, where do people go wrong? Where do, how, does it, how do you get off? Well, you start trusting in your power rather than the power of the Holy Spirit. Is it, was a person really ever saved or were they just using that as a... You see this a lot in Christian music. Christ, you, you bust into the Christian music scene and a few short years later, you find out these people might have never been saved to begin with. They were just using you to make it famous. Paul says, be very careful, trusting, charisma and charm. The world, and by the way, many Christians nowadays, seems like, tell us that we should lean into our strengths. The world will tell you this. Lean into your strengths. Find out, minimize your weaknesses and enhance your strengths. Do what, do what only you can do. Make sure that you lean into the things you can do and the things that you can't do. Give those to somebody else who can do those things. We even, I've read a lot of Christian books who tell people the same thing. And yet... In a few chapters, Paul is going to clarify and solve this issue in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. He said to me, Paul has got a thorn in the flesh, whatever that is. And listen, I'm very quickly just going to say to you, everybody wants to know what is Paul's thorn in the flesh. So I want you to think about the thing that holds you back right now. The thing that you see as an obstacle. Whatever that is, it's not named for us for Paul because you are supposed to impose your issue wherever Paul's is because whatever is true for Paul is true for your thorn in the flesh, your ghosts, your, your brokenness, your backgrounds. Whatever that thing is that holds you back, here's what the Lord says. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made weakness. You know what? Most Christians will quote part of this verse and they will say, Hey, it's okay. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. But he goes on to say, my power, my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, when we read this first part in English, it seems to allow us to continue focusing on our desires. When you hit the wall and, and you're struggling to overcome something in your natural world, Christians will come along and say, hey, God's grace is sufficient. But that's not exactly what Paul is saying. It includes that. It's so much more. You can't use God's grace as a rung on a ladder you're trying to climb. This word actually means to, to find and to live in contentment. That's what the word means, right? For my power is made perfect in weakness. 
God's grace is sufficient. It comes from a, another word that means to build barriers or to build a wall or a, a boundary. What, what Paul is saying is that when you focus on the wrong things, God's grace is sufficient and he will put a hedge of protection around you to keep you from focusing on obstacles. That's God's grace. God's grace will clearly reveal to you the boundaries of his will for you because the ladder that you're trying to climb is your ladder and it's keeping you from God's purpose. It's not enabling you to keep going so that you can get further and further away from God's glory. God's grace is meant to be a fence for you to know where God's glory dwells for you and that you can clearly focus on God's grace rather than your desire. But I think so often we lose that as Christians. It's like God enables us to live our best way. God enables us, he gives us the power to, to get it the way we want it. And when we don't, we cry out to God and say, why are you so against me? And yet that's what he says to us when we climb the wrong ladder. Why are you so against me? Do you not know that I want you to climb to life? But what you keep choosing is this climb to death. So God's strength, the manifestation of God's strength is perfected when he proves his ability through my weakness. So when I choose God's way instead of my way, that's when God is made manifest. That's when my nature or the nature of my desire stands out best when it's compared to God's desire. His grace puts contentment in my heart. His grace allows me to be satisfied in him. It allows me to choose him every time. It allows me to see the direction that I'm running. It may be good, but it's not God. The direction that I'm running and his grace allows me to see that his will for me is enough. In fact, it's the best. So, very quickly, I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to evaluate, not the way the world evaluates, evaluate the way the scripture commands us to evaluate. Do you, do you find your desire in competition with his will? The things that you want out of life, the things that you want your reputation, your influence, your power, the thing, the, the, the giftings, the, the, uh, the, the elevation of the world, the, the prominence or the, the money or the, the things or the position, whatever it may be. Do, do you find that that might be in competition with what God actually wants for you? You need to pray for God's grace because God's grace will allow his will to be enough, sufficient, and you will find pretty quickly that when you begin to choose God's will, how small your desires actually were. Because at the end of the day, you will only get your glory. And that will die when you do. But if you, but if you find contentment in God himself and in his will for your life, that will far outlive your body. I believe this is what the church truly needs a dependence upon his strength. But you know, it's been a long time since we've been dependent upon his strength. We've got huge bank accounts. Compare it to our past or compare it to the world. Huge bank accounts. We have, our nets have nets to catch us if things don't work out the way we've planned them to. And, and we can go for generations just coasting without a dependency upon God. But you know, I... I haven't been able to just pray yet for us to lose everything. But what if that's what it took for us to be dependent upon God's strength instead of ours? What does your spiritual growth and development look like? What if it were to take you losing everything to find satisfaction in the sufficiency of God's grace? Are you willing to pursue it then? The word weakness means sickness. 
or to come to a place of need. So when you only focus on your strength, I don't want to speak too, too plainly, but as, as a pastor and as a person, I can tell you that when you trust your own strength, the first sign of discomfort, that's when you're going to tap out. That's when you'll always tap out. The first sign of work, that's when you're going to tap out and say, here's where I, here's where I belong. But when you focus on his strength and your need to obey him in humility, you will learn to trust God at a completely different level. So here's what Paul says. I want for me what God wants for me. And his grace is enough to give me the contentment and the blindness so that I don't get obscured from the things of the world or my other desires. Paul says, I want to focus on supernatural fruit for his kingdom instead of natural success in mine. So which one are you pursuing? Spiritual fruit or natural successes? This is another illustration for Christians that citizens of heaven, our policies, our processes are fundamentally different. Power is actually in humility and weakness is actually strength. So as Christians, Christians are... Our goal is to honor Christ, to be obedient to his word, to be faithful to his calling. Then look at verse 17. We're going to see a progression as Paul teaches through this. This wonderful verse, it's quoted often as it should be, but I think sometimes it's separated from its context, which actually adds a lot of depth to it. Paul said that we are a new creation. And I love that language. It's not a better version of ourselves. It's not a new leaf that we get to turn over. It's not even a renewed version of ourselves, but it is a, the word means a new kind of thing, right? A new kind. If you go back into, this is like Genesis words a little bit in Hebrew, when God is creating and he creates everything after their kind. But when you give your life to Jesus Christ, he makes you a new kind. Not a cleaned up version of an old kind, but so often Christians settle for being a better version of their old way instead of a transformed version that looks like Jesus, lives like Jesus, thinks like Jesus, speaks like Jesus. So yes, we might have checked a box at our baptism and said, whoo, thank you, I'm going to heaven now. But I wonder how many said, now my golden life is to function as Jesus functions. To live out the spirit of Christ in me. How, how does that look manifested in our lives? Don't evaluate yourself by have you prayed a prayer. Evaluate yourself by Christ-likeness in you. Listen to the things you say. The way you pray. The things you desire. This will tell you much about transformation. And how far you are away from repentance. It's very similar to Jesus' language in John chapter 3 when he talks to Nicodemus and he says you must be born a new kind, to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, wait a minute, this, uh, I think expiration date has passed on my ability to be born again. I can't well, you go back to mom and do that all over again. Jesus said, how in the world are you a teacher of the Jews and you don't know this? And I think that he would say that to the church today. How, how are you calling yourselves Christians and you don't know about transformation and repentance? Jesus said we not only need a, a birth of water, which is our spiritual or our physical birth, born of water, but we also need to be born of spirit. This spiritual, not rejuvenation, not renewal, resurrection. Something must die and be placed into the ground and bear fruit. That's what he's talking about. You must die to yourself. The old has passed, and now the new kind has taken over. What is the new kind? It's a transformed kind, a metamorphosis. It's something that was, and then it was buried, and when it came back to life, it was Jesus. I know that's heavy and that's tough. And by the way, none of us passed that test. So if you're sitting there thinking, oh, woe is me. Yeah, woe is us. How's that? This is another one of the places where the theology of the Bible 
fundamentally contradicts the philosophy of this world. It says that, and you know, I mean, you, you've got TVs and computers. The world today says let people in general, they're good people. And that's the way we let our world heal is to let people be their most authentic self. Let people be whatever they want to be. Just let them go. Let them pursue. What danger does it... That's what's good. That's what's pure. Just let, let people be their most authentic self. But the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible declares that the fundamental problem of the world is not evil that exists out there. It's the evil that exists in our hearts because of our sinful or daily sinful rebellion against God. That's where the problem resides. It's not the external circumstances. The external circumstances exist because of the internal conditions. Until we deal finally and ultimately with the condition of our heart before a holy God and we repent, we recognize who we truly are. Agreeing with God on his word, on his opinions, on, I mean, I don't want to harp too much, but it's like, I don't, I don't know where, was it Ben Shapiro? It says, you know, the facts don't really care about your feelings. You know, I'm not endorsing him on everything, but I am endorsing him on, I don't know where we started elevating feelings so, so far above what God's word has said. How I feel, what I feel, what I think. Where, where has thus saith the Lord gone? And lining up with him, regardless of how I feel. So we settle for being better versions of ourselves. Temporary better versions of ourselves. Because we don't have the strength to see that all the way through. That's why we need his strength. But that better versions of ourselves leave us short of being transformed and saved from his wrath. I would think about Hebrews chapter 11. You don't have to turn over there because it's quite lengthy and it would take weeks and weeks to make our way through that one chapter. But it is a list of Old Testament saints on and on, one right after the other, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And you look at that and you say, man, these are truly heroes of our faith. And it's called the uh, hall of Faith for a reason, right? It's just like this museum of story after story after story. Powerful. And if you're not careful when you hear by faith Abraham, you will see Abraham in only one scene. When it, by faith Moses, and you'll see Moses with the Ten Commandments over his head looking over Israel. And if you're not, or maybe parting the Red Sea, if you're not careful, you'll see by Samson, by faith Samson pushing the two pillars aside. By faith Daniel, you'll see him down in a lion's den. Over and over you begin to see this Rahab protecting the spies. But I don't know why we focus on that sides of the story because that's where they reveal themselves most clearly to us and we say, wow, what people? We say, by faith Elijah, wow, Elijah, fire from heaven. Not me. And yet, I don't know why we jump to those stories because Moses tried to talk himself out of God's will more than anybody else in Scripture. Constantly lived in a place of, I don't think so. I think of Abraham who lied about his wife Sarah multiple times. And by faith, Lot who vexed his spirit daily or a Rahab who was a prostitute, or a Samson who spent his entire life disobeying God's specific will to his life. The difference is not that these people are better than us. The difference is these people recognized their sin and they repented and they did not fall away from their belief of God, of not just belief in him, believing him. And if you look at Hebrews 11, it's actually worded very, very specifically, not because these people did what you cannot do, but they did not give up believing. Even in their rebellion, they never gave up believing. And that's what made them different from the world around them. 
And that's what I want to tell you. Regardless of where you are, you don't have to call down fire from heaven. Just don't stop believing. Don't stop believing. Don't settle for a status quo kind of faith. Keep digging into the Lord. Keep growing in him. Keep learning from him. And don't tap out when it's uncomfortable or when you fail. The very first word in Jesus' very first sermon. Anybody know it? The very first word of his very first sermon. It's actually the very first word of the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. Repent. Now you think about this eternal God who chose to become flesh and dwelt among us. He come to earth and he has his first word and he's thinking, what do I choose for my very first word to my creation? I don't think he was nervous, by the way. Very first word, repent. Be transformed. Think again. Recognize where you are and think again. Choose righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the message of the church has never changed. Well, unfortunately it has. But the command has not changed The call to repent of sin before a holy God and begin this brand new journey of newness in Christ includes a consistent call to Christians to live lives of repentance too. Not check boxes, live lives of repentance. This is where the new creation comes in. So look at verse 21. I'm going to jump down there real quick. Humanity on our own fails. But God has not left us on our own. Look at verse 21. For our sake, so who's this for? Help me a little bit, okay? Who's this for? For our sake, us, he made him to be sin, him, who's him? Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we, very important word, might become what? The righteousness of God. Now, in Greek, that we might is one word. It means to to manifest into existence, right? It refers to the new creation that we are. He says that we may become a new kind. So he's already told us that old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. That anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. So now he is redundant in that. He restates that new creation. But now he gives us the motivation. The motivation is not just so that you can have a better life or so you can go to heaven one day. He says here that we might become the righteousness of God. You are made new so that you might become the righteousness of God. And that might doesn't mean a possibility, might means to be transformed, to have the opportunity to. There is no room for, does God want all of us to be this? This speaks very clearly to the purpose that God has saved us. And for so many Christians, we feel like we are saved for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, neutral till I die. But God has saved us, number one, to reveal his strength that you are worth saving. And that reveals his power. Your weakness reveals his power. That he could use people like us is pretty impressive. Not only to reveal his strength, but his righteousness into the world. And three, those, through those who are, who are saved. So... God has saved us for three reasons. Number one, to reveal his strength to the world. Number two, so that we might reveal his righteousness. Three, through those who are really incapable of doing it. It's the heart of the good news. Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, watch this. So I want you to picture like the wrath of God. Paul talks about the wrath of God hanging over our heads. I want you to think about the wrath of God hanging over our heads. While we are underneath the judgment and the wrath of God in that moment, when we are due the consequences of God's wrath, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to properly, how to even properly state this. There was this moment of decision where we're about to pay the eternal consequences. And then that moment, everything that we are, the best that we have to offer, 
our filthy rags, our unrighteousness, our sin on our worst day. That's all we have to offer. In that moment, Jesus took all of that. While we were under his wrath, when we deserve that, Jesus took your very worst day and every other day. All the consequences, everything that goes with it, Jesus took it. However, here's another one. In that same moment, everything that Jesus is in his perfection and in his power and his position as the son of God, everything that Jesus has, he traded you. He took everything that you have for everything that he has. It's called double imputation. Imputation means like an exchange. There's an exchange that takes place where everything that I am, Jesus took and he died on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And everything that I am, he took so that he could give me everything that he is. Look at what he says. That we might become the righteousness of God. The doctrine of imputation is is made very clear in Romans chapter 4. I don't have time to go over there, but the word imputation is only found uh, seven times in all of the New Testament. Six times it's found in Romans chapter 4. One time it's found in James chapter 2, where James is talking about uh, that because Abraham believed in God, it was accounted unto him as righteousness, that, that God's righteousness was imputed to Abraham. And that's the beauty of the gospel. The imputation means this exchange where Christ takes our sin and we immediately inherit his righteousness. So why is it then that we're so willing to give Jesus our former life, but we're not willing to put on Christ for our future? Why won't we live in complete surrender? Why will we relinquish this baggage and in you know, the parts that we choose to relinquish, but we continue being weighed down in our Christian life. Why won't we walk in freedom? What does freedom even look like when the Bible says that, that we who are in Christ are free? Whoever's in the Son is free indeed. Why don't we walk in that freedom? Well, here's what the freedom looks like. To reveal the righteousness of God to the broken world that don't know him yet. So we have to move. It's like I said in Hebrews chapter 11, we gotta, we gotta shift from our rebellion and idolatry and progress in believing, from believing in God to believing God. That's, where, that's what James 2 talks about with Abraham. It's like he, he, he shifts from believing in God. If you ask people, are you a Christian? Yeah, I believe in God. No, that's not the question. Do you believe God? Because I'm telling you, Christian, if you believe God, you will reveal his righteousness to a world of unrighteousness. There's a byproduct of believing him. Not just believing in him. Believing him will get you baptized. Believing him will say, let's go. So the old has passed away. It's done. And the new has come. So when you believe in Jesus, there's a fundamental transformation that happens in your soul. You move from death to life. You actually, Paul is saying, you were the thing that was standing in your way. But now you have moved that thing. Jesus removes you and he places Jesus in you. Because of that, your affections begin to change. And those things you desire begin to change. And the, 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 the desires of your heart begin to change. The things you want for people begin to change. You begin to look at the world with compassion. You begin to see the world with eyes of Jesus. You begin to care without being told to care. You begin to love without having to be told to love. That's why Jesus has the power to overcome addictions. Because you, you begin to, to, to see those things that you desire begin to change. The way you feel about people begins to change. The things you think about when nobody else is around begin to change. All of the lies that you tell yourself begin to change. Jesus begins to over, help you overcome and the brokenness and the pain and the, and the habits that you could never fathom overcoming. Maybe you don't even want them to change, but you begin to sense this lack of contentment and want the things of God to bring contentment. It's about knowing what God wants for you and not 
following how you feel or learning to feel like Jesus. Jesus is not in the business of fixing old things. That's not what he does. He is in the business of creating new things. So if you keep asking, and I, I, I want to be very, I mean, it's, it's complicated. I understand that. But I want to just be really, really simple for a moment. If you were in this pattern of asking Jesus to fix broken things in your life, maybe you should consider being transformed and becoming a new kind. That's what we need, is to become a new kind, not a fixed thing that was broken. Jesus gives life to even death. You are not beyond the scope of his forgiveness and his resurrection. But I think that's one of the reasons why people wrestle with Jesus. Because we're not ready for death. We're not ready to lay everything down before him. We just want him to fix the parts that were broken that kept us from our decisions, kept us from our desires. So, God, if I just had this thing right here fixed, this thing just crept up. It just broke. Will you fix this thing? And once it's fixed, I can, I can keep going my way. That's why we wrestle with God. God, fix this issue. But the things that brought you to the issue is the problem. And they must be fixed. They must be healed. They must be transformed. Typically, the things that brought brokenness into your life are you. And you need healed at a spiritual level. Let's go over to verse 18 and 19. We'll go backwards a little bit. He said, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, that word gave is, is, rather, is rather complicated, and so I'm going to just give you the nuanced meaning of gave. Actually, what it would say is, is that, that something belonged to God but he has transferred that responsibility to us. Okay, It belonged to him. He transferred it to us. We're not owners of it. He's transferred the responsibility to us, not the ownership. We are only stewards. So when it says here that he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation still belongs to him. The scope, the sequence, the purpose, the, the source, all those things, those are all within his purview. But he trusts us as stewards and as partners to relay that ministry of reconciliation to the lost and broken world around us. So here's what I would say to us post-baptism. And I know I'm using baptism just as a, I don't I want to talk about a prayer or whatever, just talking about from death to life, okay? But if we have received Jesus, you have received that stewardship of reconciliation. If you have received Jesus, this is not about spiritual giftings. This is not about the gift of evangelism or the gift of gab or the gift of charisma. This is not about just those who can stand in front of people and communicate. This isn't about those who have more time on their hands so that they can study more. There is not a Christian who has not been given the ministry of reconciliation. We as the body are partners with God himself to restore humanity reconciled back into God. Now, let's stop for just a moment because you cannot be that if you have not had Christ's righteousness imputed to you. And you cannot have that if you are not a new creation. And so these are fundamental blocks, but I'm telling you, you were not saved as the chief end of salvation. The goal was not so that you could receive Christ, but so that through him, the world might be reconciled. When he saved you, he saved a missionary. He saved someone that would go into the world and preach the gospel. 
Someone who would reveal Christ in his holiness to the world that is broken and far from him, who is so sick and tired of over and over and over and over trying new things to feel better and to feel contentment. It's the grace of God that brings contentment in a person's life. And if you're not satisfied with the grace of God, there is nothing the world has to offer that will give you satisfaction and contentment. Verse 19, he says, not counting their trespasses against them. That goes back to verse 16 when he says that we regard no one according to the flesh. When God is on mission, listen to this, and this is so important for us as as we begin a series today. But when God is on mission, he, and and I, I I want to be very, very clear, so, you know, rattle your cage for a second or punch the person behind you because I really want you to hear this. When God is on mission, He does not count trespasses against those he seeks. He doesn't doesn't consider their sin as he seeks them. We don't like that, do we? Let me tell you why we don't like that. Because we're really good at judging people in their sin. Seeing who's who's too far away and who's, who's close. You can usually tell. When you're talking to somebody, you can tell how far somebody is. He says, when God's on mission, what does he say? He's the one that says it. He says he doesn't count it. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. How often do we pick and choose who God will save? Or who will communicate to? You ever find it easier to communicate Jesus to people you know already know Jesus? How easy is that? We, talk, we pat ourselves on the back that we talk to a stranger about Jesus when we find out that they already knew Jesus. How often are you not counting their trespasses against them or regarding them according to the flesh that are far from God? Let me ask you this, where are you recreating yourself in community so that you can be with people far from God? Or are you trying to sweep up your life so you don't have to be with those people? I feel like God's calling us deeper, church, a lot deeper. He, he says he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. I do believe that he's talking to the church at Corinth. He's also talking to the church at Connect. Giving us the ministry of reconciliation. How are we doing that? How are we deploying our ministry of reconciliation in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, our Samaria, and to the uttermost? So let me shift gears. How are we doing? I'm not sure. So I will leave you to your own personal evaluation. Where are you contributing your ministry of reconciliation into the ministry of reconciliation? Look at verse 20. He gives us the title, Ambassadors for Christ. Minister of Reconciliation, here's what God does. He puts Jesus inside of us, and then he says, ah, Speak for me. You can speak for me. Ambassadors. The ambassador is one who speaks on behalf of another. He represents another. A faithful ambassador does not mix a little bit of his master's words with his own. He represents purely and wholly him to the world. Have you ever thought about yourself as an ambassador? That God has raised you up as an ambassador of his kingdom? So it doesn't take much to move from that to Asking ourselves the question, what kind of view or image do others have of Jesus because of your ambassadorship? What what do people, broken people, untransformed people, what view do they have of Jesus because of your influence in their lives where you have revealed to them the righteousness of Christ because of his willingness to impute his righteousness to you? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
What? God's appeal is through us. Wouldn't it make more sense for God just to stop the world and just speak with a loud voice? But that's not the way God chooses. God chooses to make his appeal through your ambassadorship. Is it any wonder that the world thinks that Christians are inconsistent, wishy-washy, double-minded, lazy, hypocritical, using Jesus as a crutch when they don't know what to do next? Because that's exactly what we've revealed to the world. Jesus offers nothing better. I love Paul's words of closing today. We implore. That word's the same. So often this word is translated pray, beg, beseech. Think about how you pray to God. Have you ever sat down with somebody? And again, please understand this is just semantics. Have you ever just pleaded with somebody to get right with Jesus? Or do you just dance around it like this, hoping that maybe they'll get it? If, I just, if they just watch me long enough, or if I just, I don't want to be right in their face. What Paul says is, listen, just like I pray to God, I pray to you, please, please give your life to Jesus. Who's in your life right now that you, when you say that, they are convicted rather than offended? Have you ever implored someone on Jesus' behalf? Sit down, look them in the eye, beseech, beg them to receive the gift of grace so that they can be content and have purpose. We've spent so much time trying to figure out how to whitewash, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, We have watered down the gospel so much. We have made Jesus just a timid caricature of who he really is. Who would want him? Or hey, your life is so broken. Why don't you just give your brokenness to Jesus and he can make you feel better. So people pray a prayer and they feel better, but they don't walk in power and strength and righteousness. I think one of the reasons is because we've lost our voice. We don't live in power. We don't live in purpose. We don't, we don't follow our giftings. We don't follow obediently what Jesus taught us to do post-salvation. We're not revealing Jesus to the world. So today, really what I want to do in closing is I just want us to kind of, I want us to think about that for, for a minute or two. I know that's heavy message. But, but I can see it. I think God has given me a a clear vision for for us. And I know many of you already share it. But I I, I just don't feel like we're just, I I don't feel like we're just a church anymore. I feel like we're through Christ, the hope of the River Valley. I feel like God's not just calling us to get together on Sunday mornings and worship. He's calling us to be a light every moment of every day, everywhere we go. That's what I mean. I, I see it clearly. And I know that's easy to say. We could have said that for 74 years of our history, but I've never seen it more clearly where God is giving us opportunity every day to speak life. But folks, you have to believe who you are in Jesus Christ. You have to be sold out to him. You have to die to him and allow him to resurrect your life. And you have to walk in the fullness of that. Otherwise, we're just going to keep going through the motions, waiting for heaven. But heaven is at hand. We've already entered it. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're already walking in his kingdom with a different way of looking. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to be sharing with you lots of opportunities, new territory, where I believe God is calling us into as a church. I, and I, it's not my call, because I, I don't have all the answers. Uh, But I do believe that God is calling us to it. And so as we begin to talk about what it looks like, I hope that your yes will already be there so that we can see at least the River Valley getting a taste of who Jesus truly is.
Let's pray together. Will you stand with me, please? You may, uh, you may be here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus. I don't know. I don't know exactly where each one of you, of us, are in our journey of faith. But maybe you're here and you've made a decision to be saved, but not necessarily saved to something, saved from something. And today, maybe you realize that your life in Christ is, must have purpose and direction to it. And if you're not living like, I mean, you may be satisfied with the purpose you're already pursuing, but if it's not revealing Jesus, you're missing the real purpose of your life. I mean, just remember, everything that God has given you, it is so, there's a so that attached to it. A so that. Everything so that you might be his ambassador as a minister of reconciliation to the world. He has given that to us. You say, Pastor Blaine, I wouldn't have the first idea of how to talk to somebody about Jesus. You, you don't even have to. You don't have to know because then you'll depend on your strengths and you'll begin to speak about your strength. You'll begin to tell your story of how you found Jesus. But let me tell you something. You didn't find Jesus. He found you. That's the story. He found you. He pursued you long before you wanted a relationship with him. He convicted you long before you felt it. That's the story of what God is doing, not what you are doing. Or what he has done in you, but what he is doing in the world. Listen, we've complicated it so much and we've become timid. We've become fearful. We've become doubting. And it's all paralyzed us from our ability to naturally communicate about Jesus. Maybe today you realize that you've never walked with him. You don't know him. Oh, you believe in him, but you've not believed him yet. Now, believe him for us, but you don't believe him for you. Won't you make that decision today? And maybe you've been far too content with much lesser things. My prayer is that today we will become restless until we find our contentment. In him. But where do we begin? Well, there is no beginning without repentance. And so today, that's what I'm calling us to. Wherever you are, on the on the chart, there's room for repentance and say, Lord, I've not been what I should be. I've not done what you've called me to do. But I'm not only willing. I was thinking about this. Uh, Josh and I were out of town, town this week. And I saw several churches. And on their sign it said, uh, you know, down to bottom. It said, everyone. Anybody know what it says on churches? Everyone, welcome. Everyone's welcome. And I thought, you know, that, that statement, if I see it. And I know what they mean by that, right? I'm a, church, I'm a pastor. Everyone, welcome. What I hear, though, if I'm an unbeliever, is I go, welcome. I, the, the onus is on me then to make, a, to make a movement, right? How much better would it be if we didn't have a church where everyone is welcome, which really requires nothing of us, but we were at a church that invited people into the life of Christ? There's a big difference between, hey, you're welcome. My hands are off. You know, I'll let you decide than imploring people to come into the kingdom. Let's repent before the Lord this morning, okay? Lord, for those here this morning that, that recognize our deepest need, we're so grateful for the salvation that makes us new, but I'm grateful, Lord, for the daily salvation that gets us out of the way, that gives us purpose, meaning, Thank you for the partnership that you've given us. And I, I pray, Lord, we, it's easy for us to, to pray for revival. It's another thing for us to implore. To have the ministry of reconciliation on our own lips. That's where, 
revival begins in our own lives. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, discernment. I think of the Apostle Paul, the strongest, but <laughs> like a bulldog. And yet how often he asks the church to pray for his boldness. So Lord, today I pray for boldness. I pray that you would use us as a fire into our community. As school goes back, Lord, as, as tech begins, Lord, for those that are teachers in here, I pray that you would give us a fire. I pray that you'd give us a purpose in our marriage, give us a purpose in our families, give us a purpose in our work. Allow us to recognize that those, everything that we have, Lord, is we give it to you in exchange for everything that you have. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.